Uh, my name is Seth Manukin, and I am the director of the Communications Forum. Uh, I'm thrilled that you're all here for the first forum of the year. Um, our director emeritus, David Thorburn, is also in the audience who uh, led the forum for many, many years. Um, and tonight, for the first forum of the year, uh, we are, we're, we're talking about Jim Crow and the legacy of segregation outside of the South. Um, I'm going to introduce our panelists, and then we will get right into it. Uh, Melissa Nobles, who's immediately to my left, is the Keenan Sahin Dean at the School of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences, uh, and a professor of political science at MIT. She is also a collaborator and advisory board member of Northeastern Law School's Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Clinic. Her current research is focused on constructing a database of racial murders in the American South between 1930 and 1954. She's the author of two books, Shades of Citizenship, Race and Census in Modern Politics, and The Politics of Official Apologies. And she's written many related book chapters and articles. And down at the end of the table is Tracy Mears, uh, who um, miraculously drove up from <laughs> Yale today uh, and was not foiled by traffic along the way. Um, she is the Walton Hale Hamilton Professor of Law at Yale Law School and the Director of the Justice Collaboratory. Uh, before coming to Yale, she was the Max Pam Professor of Law and the Director of the Center for Studies in Criminal Justice at the University of Chicago. Um, and she was the first African-American woman granted tenure at both of those institutions. She's worked, worked extensively with the federal government, and in December 2004, she was named to be a member of President Obama's task force on 21st century policing, uh, which we will talk about um, in due course. Uh, again, I'm Seth Manukin. I'm in Comparative Media Studies here at MIT. Like all forums, um, we'll start out with roughly an hour of conversation, and then we will open it up to all of you. Uh, and for people who do not make it um, here, some version of this will also be available online at a later point. Um, so uh, Melissa, I wanted to start with you um, and, and just ask a little bit about the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project, about what exactly that is and, and what it's working on. Great, thank you. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here and it's so good to see so many people joining us uh, this afternoon. So the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project started in 2007 um, at Northeastern Law School. Uh, Margaret Burnham is the director, and she actually was a lecturer here at the Political Science Department prior to that. And um, the conference was about cold cases of the civil rights era, that is, from um, and trying to find a way of investigating those cases. And we were talking then about the 1960s, mostly. But after the conference, we realized that there was a big hole out there, and that is uh, racial violence prior to the Civil Rights Movement. That is, there was a ton of violence during the Civil Rights Movement, and we can reasonably attribute it to black mobilization and efforts to stop the movement. Um, but then what wasn't well understood, and I don't think she and I really appreciated it until we actually started the work, is that the period of the Jim Crow South the segregated South is not well understood, at least in terms of its violence. We have a pretty good story in the US, and it goes something like this. There was slavery, then there was uh, slavery ended. We had the Civil War, we had the, uh, the civil rights, the, uh, the uh, major amendments to the Constitution, 13th, 14th, and 15th. We have then um, the violation of those rights during the Jim Crow period, 1965 Civil Rights Movement, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, the rest, in 2008, 
black president, right? And it's a, and it's a, and it's a rather, in the story, we can go in the story right? A rather kind of triumphant story, um, and one in which we, in certain ways, can rightly celebrate. But the period of the Jim Crow South is largely, at least in political science, and oftentimes in popular views of that period, one of disenfranchisement, segregated um, uh, schools and, and uh, water fountains, and violence, yes, but largely perpetrated by the KKK and maybe some one-off. But other than that, the, co the coercive dimensions of that period are not well studied or understood. And we began to see that when we started going into the, uh, the archives. And so there is a book that was published in 1995. It's called The Festival of Violence by two sociologists that talks about lynchings from in this, it uses a database based upon black newspapers from 1888, roughly, to 1930. And the, the authors make the argument that racial violence declines after 1930 because of the black migration out of the South. The, uh, you can't lynch your workers. Um, people are fleeing the horrors of the South. And so therefore, that's why we see a decrease in violence in the 30s and 40s and early 50s. But that's an assertion, not an argument, because there's no evidence. They don't have the data to show that violence actually decreased in the 1930s and 1940s, hence our project. And so we use a similar methodology. We go and we look at newspaper accounts. Luckily, within the past 10 years, many black major newspapers, and these are mostly weeklies, are now digitized. So it makes certain searches easier. And also, by the 1930s and 1940s, you have the rise of the NAACP, um, its chapters opening. So they themselves are creating papers, and those papers are in archives. There's the Department of Justice that belatedly gets, begins with NAACP activism to begin to investigate the South, and the FBI. And all of those papers in the War Department, the US War Department, because of soldiers who were killed after, when they came back after the war. And all of those archives have not been well examined, I mean, at all. Um, so we along with uh, Professor with Margaret, Margaret Burnham, we, we basically come up with these, we, I, I, I provide the cases. I, you know, I give them newspaper accounts. We have law students. The law students treat, basically investigate these cases um, and contact surviving family members. And what we're finding is just a range of violence that none of us had anticipated, right? That many, as much of it was committed by police officers as by civilians. Um, that it is in rural counties, it is, it's, some of it's connected to work. Many of it, many of the, of the violence is oftentimes connected to a violation of, of Jim Crow norms. You didn't take your hat off. You didn't say, sir. When the, when the police officer, when the soldiers come back from the war, um, they get on the buses and they've got their uniforms on. And little did we know, I don't know if you all knew this, but in, Al in Atlanta and Birmingham, bus drivers were armed. So they are, I mean, we hear about the Rosa Parks and she didn't stand up. Yeah, I know why a lot of people didn't stand up the bus drivers. You get shot, at least in certain cities where they were armed. So in effect, certain state legislatures deputize bus drivers. They're not trained to be police officers. They're not trained, right? So if you get into an argument, so certain of these deaths are because a soldier gets on the, on, the, on, the, uh, on the bus, he has a certain carriage about him. He's just served in the war. He's proud of himself. He's got his uniform on. Um, I'm thinking about one guy in particular. His name was Timothy uh, uh, Hood, and I think it was Birmingham, or um, yeah, I think it was Birmingham. He gets on the bus, and he decides that there's a, 
So Jim Crow, you had like a, a little sign that said, you know, you sit behind this for Jim Crow. So he moved it forward so that more blacks could sit down. And his moving it forward meant he was moving it into the white section of the bus. Bus driver didn't like that. There's an altercation. He ends up dead. So these, I mean, the, so it's, for us, uh, investigating, investigating this, just getting into these cases, um, we've just seen a lot and we've learned a lot and it's given us a much more textured view of the nature of coercion in the South and what it meant. So how that echoes today is, and then I'll pass it on to Tracy, is um, a lot of the violence that we've seen that we've been talking about from Trayvon Martin to all of the names that we've tragically heard over the past two years. Some, no, some portion of those deaths have to do with threat perception, behaviors, control of space, discipline, what are you doing here? You don't belong in this neighborhood. You look like a threat for the woman, uh, uh, the woman in the car in Texas. Are you irritated? Seemingly simple interactions, which ought not end up in death sentences, end up that way. And at least what I'm finding and what we're finding in our research is that those perceptions are deeply rooted in Jim Crow. That, in part, was what Jim Crow was about. You know, not being able to sit at a, uh, at a, at a, in a bus or you know, having to sit at a drink out of another kind of water fountain, being able to vote, those are all incredibly important. But an, an equally important part of the civil rights of the Jim Crow period was the norms of behavior, how you behaved and its marking of your status. And when people begin to want to challenge the status or act out of place, murder, you know, violence erupts. And in that way, the echoes of Jim Crow seem to me to be in the North today. Right? George Zimmerman self-deputized himself. Right. You don't belong in this name. Who are you? Well, many Southern whites felt that it was their job to deputize. You know, they could all police black, um, you know, blacks in the Jim Crow South. That was part of what it meant. Jim Crow meant that you knew your place. It, ha it worked not only on laws, but on behaviors. The echoes of that, and this my view, um, that's what makes what's happening in the 21st century so alarming, is it echoes that. Um, and it's something that is resistant to legislation. And uh, so, so that goes back to the Jim Crow period. Tracy, I want to um, ask you about uh, looking up north and looking at how um, some of the notions of black criminality were sort of established uh, or seemed to have been established in the North uh, as early as the late 19th century. So um, I think you're referring to, Seth, a book that you and I talked about um, a couple of days I ago. I did my I best to say, race through today. Uh, I should say it's not my research, um, so I don't want anyone to think that I've done this research, although I think it is quite amazing. Um, it's a book by a historian named Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and the book is called Condemnation of Blackness. And um, the connection and the reason why I've been interested in it is because my work has focused um, not precisely on the same topics that <coughs> Melissa's work is focused on, but really about how to think about um, uh, norms of criminal procedure, the actual law of criminal procedure, how the interpretation of constitutional law through the relevant reconstructions, right? So the first reconstruction was a passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Um, many of my colleagues call the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in that period the second reconstruction. And there's a question, right, about whether we are now 
on the verge of a third uh, reconstruction. All around these kinds of issues and the ways in which both violence and, and state violence plays a, a role in that. So um, going back to um, Khalil Muhammad's work, what he shows really interestingly is the ways in which we have used statistics over time to construct a picture of black people um, as criminals. And what's fascinating about his work is he shows that from the very first census in the 1890s, um, there was a process by which we are counting groups of people, so not just whites and blacks as it's often talked about today, but there was uh, separate groups of, of white people, um, natives and immigrants, and he can show how over time there was tracking of white immigrant criminality that fell by the wayside as in the progressive era, um, these groups of people in the north um, received lots of help um, from many groups. So you think about in Chicago, like Whole House and um, you know, by lots of social service agencies, essentially, but often private groups, while African-Americans, he says, were left to work out their own salvation. And I think the reason why that's important to think about today, um, in today's context, is there is this trope uh, about the ways in which um, black people are, um, are criminals, they're predating on themselves, therefore inviting a certain kind of policing. It demands an aggressive state action while not receiving the same kind of help that other groups received in the past. So therefore, this kind of policing becomes a warrant for itself, justified by um, helping, supposedly, this group of people that can't seem to stop killing uh, themselves. But it's also related to what Melissa was talking about in terms of constructing a threat, right? Um, who, who is the threat, and what are we entitled to do to people who threaten us? And so in that, in that period, um, and I found this astounding, you, you, they would, crime statistics would be broken down literally into yeah. Russian, which meant yeah. Jew, um, Irish, Italian, uh, and then essentially everything was done away with except for black and white. Yes. Um, and it raises the question of- During this same period. Yeah, yeah okay. right. Yeah. And, and, and largely in the North. Yes. Yeah. And it, it raises the question of is there any um, useful reason to maintain those type of statistics in this day and age? Or should we look at crime more uh, as urban versus suburban or income levels or? It's an interesting question. I mean, so if you look at European countries, you can't actually keep these kinds of statistics by ethnic group or race. It's, you know, it's against the law post-World War II for right. obvious reasons. Um, People like, um, you know, uh, I believe, I'm not sure if he still believes this. It's an ongoing conversation we've had, but Glenn Lowry has at one point <laughs> made this argument. I'm not sure, does he still believe it? I'm not sure. Glenn, um, Glenn Lowry's a writer for the National Review. Uh, um, he used to be, but now he's, he was to the right, now he's 
more to the left. He's moved slightly, slightly. to the left yes. of yes. the yeah. extreme right. And, and <laughs> Professor, it's, he's still at Brown. Brown. He's at Brown. Okay. So, right, but what's, you know, and interestingly, if we talk about government practice, um, you know, the NAACP actually didn't want, I'm not talking about crime now, I'm no. talking about um, the, um, e the EEOC statistics, um, didn't want those statistics actually kept. And the government was like, well, how are we going to be able to track discrimination right. in the workplace if we don't right. keep track of it, right? And I think one of the things that Khalil shows is that the tracking of those kinds of statistics actually was helpful to certain groups. Right, and then you you know you know what people are doing, you know what kind of help they need, and it was helpful to certain immigrant groups. It just wasn't helpful to African Americans. And it was helpful to certain immigrant groups in uh, in in creating social policies that would help them. Correct. Got it. Okay. Um, so, Melissa, m moving back to to some of the work that you do. Uh, so, in putting together this database, um, have you, I, I've, I've always thought of that period as a period that at this point is fairly well understood in right. American history. Mm -hmm. um, there's certainly no shortage of, of both popular and academic writings on it. Uh, does, has your sense of that changed at yeah, all it since has your work? quite a bit, as I was mentioning. Yeah, it's, it's true, it's well studied on, along certain dimensions. But the, uh, but the understanding of violence is not well understood. And I think there's several reasons for it. Some of it is a general argument about the study of the American South in general. Um, there has not been as much scholarly interest in the region. And some of this has to do with the relative underdevelopment of, the, of that region relative to the other parts of, of the US. Um, that region being the South. The South, right, exactly. Um, and um, there wasn't a whole lot of interest within the South to study these issues for obvious reasons. Um, but, uh, but scholars looking on the outside, if you want to study, for example, so the states weren't always that well um, endowed. Um, and so state administration was not well done. Right. Um, and certain of this work is simply going through court records to the degree that there were actually any kind of court actions, arrests, or the like. Um, vital statistics, records, all of those things. So certain of this is kind of a function. And you know, to the degree that academic work is opportunistic, right? you're not really trying to be uh, the pioneer of certain things. If you, can, if you can get a great database from New York and Massachusetts or California or something to make an argument, you're not likely to go someplace where that's going to be difficult. Right. So some part of this has to do with the nature of the region, um, quite independent of uh, race, and has to do with more the e political economy of the US. Um, in addition to that, though, there is, um, as I mentioned, and I, you know, I did, wasn't saying this tongue-in-cheek, there is a certain uh, historical narrative that we're comfortable with, and it's part of American myth-making, which is somehow that this violence um, wasn't really, um, you know, wasn't as central to the period as, um, as it was. Or wasn't, wasn't, as central, wasn't a central component, or wasn't as central to the sort of almost uh, official governance of the um, period. Well, it was more our understanding of it because it was certainly understood by governance to be um, it, to be important. But Southern legislators and policemen they had different views about it, in part because the 
the mission to stop lynchings, and that is to agree that there were civil groups that tried to stop lynchings, the Southern um, Women's Conference for the Prevention of Lynching, I think that's what it was called. Um, you know, they made the argument that we have to control this violence because it, it, we, are, we, we are seen as a, law, uh, you know, a, a lawless society, right? right? This vigilantism and these police working under the color of law, right, you know, kind of killing people who they're supposed to be protecting, right, and bring, bringing them to justice. That is, you know, whether you've committed a crime or not, that's what courts are for to establish them, establish the fact of that. Um, so we can't have policemen acting and we can't have citizens kind of taking the law into their own hands. So part of the argument against lynching wasn't about, you know, human rights or the value of black people or anything. It was like, we are lawless and we need law, right? And there were others who thought, well, no, we are very happy to operate in this kind of gray zone of, of, um, of you know, kind of a selective application and denial of rights. And so that tension also um, is a, a part of that period. And none of those things, I don't think, are well understood. And they had a deep impact on, obviously, black Americans to the degree that they were subject to its vagaries. But, but you know, poor whites were subject. You know, no one wants, you know, to live in a lawless society. And it was regionally, I, I'm saying the South, but it was quite variable across states and regions. Right. Not surprisingly, no. These states don't look too well when I'm looking at the database. Just an eyeball. This won't surprise you all. Mississippi, Georgia. Alabama, Texas, and Florida. The Upper South, not so bad. It's North Carolina, South Carolina, sometimes, right? But when you think about just the numbers, yeah, yeah it's those, those parts and certain counties within them. But we haven't yet, we're still trying to develop this database because, um, and then I'll be quiet, is we take one case, we send students out, and invariably we find another case. And when we find the cases and we talk to family members, some of the family members, as I've told people, have said, how did you find out about what happened to my grandmother, my mother, my, my grandma? Because we come with the records huh. from the FBI. Because so, oftentimes, certain of these cases were investigated. But they didn't know that because many right. of the family members, families don't talk about it. They, many of them fled the South, right? So it sounds a lot like what's happening all over the world. They fled. They went north. They didn't tell their kids about it. You don't need to know what happened to grandma, this and that. And it's not because they didn't love and care about grandma. It's because they didn't want the kids to have that burden. Mm -hmm. But when we come, it's all, all the stuff comes, you know, really kind of rushing out. So, so in a way, it's, that's, the, that's kind of the untold story. And there is, if I'm speaking, there's a certain urgency to this because people are dying. Like when we, there are cases that we can't fully finish. Maybe the survivors, the survivors are, dying. are dying or witnesses or, right. you know, a family member or something um, are dying. And we kind of feel like right now it's, you know, a, a living history. Within 10 years, it's going to be a history, right? It's not going to be any direct survivors or people who are witnesses or who remember the time or this and that. And when they're gone, so much of this, the richness of it as well as the horror of it will be unknown to us. And we'll be allowed to continue with our myth-making about what the United States was. So you know what I find fascinating about this is <clears throat> part of what you're t the story you're telling resonates with me. The part that feels a little bit jarring is mm. the idea that this isn't the story that we know because I come mm. at it from mm. law, mm. right? And so if you look at the development of criminal procedure, 
Um, the criminal procedure that you all know is probably the criminal procedure that you see on Law and Order, which I think is still on TV. It is, I, and it's very always very on TV. Of them <laughs> I don't know. I stopped watching TV about six years ago. I have five kids. I just had to give up something. Um, <laughs> and so what you see are these things about the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the exclusionary rule. All, OK, so that's new. Right. That that those are Warren Court. Those are Warren Court decisions, basically developed at the tail end of the period that um, Melissa is is studying. So the fifties right? and sixties. Yeah, but, you know, basically, um, Map versus Ohio incorporates the exclusionary rule. Um, to the Fourth Amendment in 1961, I think it is. And Not then, that anyone here doesn't know what the exclusionary rule is, but why don't you give a 10-second? <laughs> but you watch Law and Order. OK, so the exclusionary <laughs> rule is if there is a violation of the Constitution, usually the Fourth or the Fifth Amendment, whatever evidence that was obtained in violation of one of those amendments, an illegal search or um, a coerced confession, or a confession obtained in violation of Miranda. And I know you all know what Miranda is, because even my fifth grader knows what that is, um, who once actually told me I violated her Miranda. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <it's> like, <laughs> um, that evidence has to be thrown out. It can't be used at court. It's, it's, an, it's excluded. And so it's how we enforce these constitutional rules. OK, but before the Warren Court developed these rules, there is a prior period um, in which the Supreme Court, this is in the 20s, um, decided that it was going to start reviewing um, state court criminal decisions almost exclusively in the South. Actually, I can't even think of a case that was, that was not in the South. So the cases you should be thinking about in this era are, if you've ever heard of the Scottsboro Boys, mm -hmm. um, there's a very, very famous case called Powell versus Alabama where the Supreme Court decided that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment requires that a lawyer be appointed to, and I quote, poor illiterate Negroes who could not help themselves in this particular case. Now, the South, because it's worried about being lawless, right. Right, is celebrating because we gave these people a trial. Like, granted, they got a, a lawyer the day of the trial, and the lawyer really wasn't prepared. And you know, the, court, the Supreme Court is like, yeah, 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 no. This is not going to work. There was another case during that period called Norris versus Alabama because there was actually a law on the books that excluded black people from the, um, the jury. Um, and that in the Scottsboro Boys cases, the Supreme Court said that was um, unconstitutional. There were other cases at this time, Moore versus Dempsey, which was about sort of mob justice in any case. It's a bunch of cases where the court is making these tentative steps, all based on the 14th Amendment, to say that there has to be some basic level of fundamental fairness. They tossed out words like ordered liberty and the basic principles of justice and so on and so forth. Um, and what's happening is that the court is defining the meaning of due process as against the lawlessness of Southern justice, while mostly leaving the North alone, right? I mean, you know, some of the rules are, are applied there, but you know, the sense was, hey, you know, the North—they're getting their act together. What are they doing? Khalil would say, right. you know, they're helping these people, you know, figure out how to be American, ignoring the fact that there are 
um, African Americans also in these cities, not so many, but some, who are not really being treated justly. Wait, and it I'm wasn't sorry. just one more sentence. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't really until the sort of the 50s where you know the Warren Court was just fundamentally dissatisfied with the slow pace because it's very you know sporadic, right? It wasn't sort of wholesale regulatory. You can't do this. And so the Warren Court jumps in, comes up with all these rules, and develops these rules actually without reference to race. So as I said, right. in these early cases, they were very clear. This is why we're doing it. We understand what we're doing with reference to racist Southern criminal justice. And in the Warren Court opinions, race is never mentioned, except for in one case, Terry versus Ohio, footnote 11. That's really it. And, but I, so I just wanted to clarify when you said that they figured that they, the sense was in the 20s that the northern states were dealing with this, and by that you meant that discrimination against white ethnic groups, they were dealing with that. I think that's the, I mean, that's the interpretation yeah, yeah. that no, I right, would right, give right. because the right. cases, there aren't really right. any cases, not very many. Now, sometimes you'll get some, you know, coerced confession, third degree cases. But you know, these case, those cases have their genesis, the law that allows the court to even have anything to say right. um, about those, uh, those situations in the North have their basis in um, review of what's happening. In, in the, in in the, the 20s. South. Yeah, right. in, in the South. Right. And um, Melissa, with the Restorative Justice Project, uh, you're not only putting together this database. Um, it's been involved in some truth commissions, uh, um, some uh, uh, after the fact exonerations. Right. Um, why is that something that's seen as being important it, right now in 2015? Right, well one of the things that we think is um, oftentimes, uh, and this is partly a function of the pedagogy in dealing with law students um, and dealing with families, which is that um, in most of these cases there can be no criminal prosecution, I mean, the people dead and the like. But people want something, right? And oftentimes, for certain families, it is enough that their story is told and known. Um, some want it known publicly, what happened to their family members, so they've allowed us to um, videotape and that kind of thing. And others, it's quite private, right? And they just think, we appreciate what you've done for my family, but we're not too interested in sharing. Um, and we respect that as well. Um, and then whatever we can do, um, you know, we try to. So, so for certain of them, I don't have specific, I wish I had a specific case in mind. There's so many sometimes run together. But some, for example, is as simple as correcting a death certificate, where they will say, um, they may say shot, right? So yeah, the person was shot. But they may not tell the circumstances of that, right? Um, you know, by a lynch mob or you know something. So just so that the you know we kind of set that record straight. Right. Um, sometimes um, um, I wasn't involved, so I, I kind of hesitate to speak out of turn. But uh, my collaborator, she helped um, along with attorneys um, in South Carolina to help with the ex exoneration of the uh, George Stinney case, right. the young man who was executed at age 13, I think it was. Um, um, in South Carolina, um, where he was so small they had to put him on yeah. books to put him in the electric chair. Um, that case, uh, we were working with some lawyers down in South Carolina, and there was someone who was alive at the time, this person was alive at the time, but was afraid, I mean, today, to talk about it. 
And um, because of repercussions, because yeah, there's a fear. Just you know, they were they you know they they were fearful. They you know, yes, things have changed, but um, you know, we're still living down here. And that's one thing I guess I want to say is that um, here in the you know northern and other parts of the country, um, the southern problem became a national problem for lots of many obvious ways. One way is that southern legislators controlled the federal right. Senate, right? I mean, so they were. It was always a national problem, um, and as blacks began to flee and left, went up north and came, the issues came with them. They came to just the, the up south, as it was called, right? Circumstances which weren't, in certain ways, much better than in the south. Um, but the the um, I lost my chance. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, You're talking about how afraid. They yeah, the afraid. The 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 fear is that is that um, many people actually did not leave the South. Right. And in certain of our cases, the perpetrators, the perpetrators descendants, and the victims' descendants right. live in the same town. Right? But, and let me just say one thing. And in certain of these cases, you'll have a name, and it'll have, um, there'll be one syllable missing. And it's intended, or it'll have an S. Let's say the last name is Jones, and the name is Joan. The white family would be Joan, and the black family would be Jones. They all the the connection is slavery, right? But they changed the names to distinguish the line, right? right? So we found a lot of cases where you say, oh, that's the black part of the Jones, or that's the white part, because because it's all people haven't left. So there's a certain level of mobility that we have in northern cities, but in certain parts of the of the South today. People did not leave, and their descendants are still there. So it's not ancient. It's like that was just a couple of generations ago, and their people are still here, and he runs the commissioner. And so we don't need you all coming down here talking to us about this. And that's also happened, which is sometimes why we use Southern students. Because even though I'm African American, I'm still considered a Northerner. They hear my accent, and I can talk about my people from the South. They're like, yeah, yeah. Go back up to MIT, right? And, um, and so we have to deal with that. Uh, and I'm not, I don't want to make you know, the South sound like it's a foreign place, but I do want to say that it's not, um, this is also a reality of our country. It's not the only thing. The South is a lot of different things, but it is still that. So we've been talking a lot about the South, and I usually try and at least pretend that I'm going to uh, address what's in the title yeah, of no, the no, forum. No, 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 no. I'm at fault, not. Um, but uh, but one of the things that sparked this was we were we were talking about um, how much more segregated northern cities are than southern cities, right. um, and how striking that is in a city like Boston, um, even a city like New York. Uh, um, and I wonder uh, whether, or I'd like to get your thoughts on whether that has to do with the fact that the South, to some extent, was forced to go through this reckoning um, after maybe the second reconstruction, the first and second, uh, that the North sort of didn't have to go through. You look like you deeply disagree with what I just said. <laughs> no, you know, I think, no. I, I, I was thinking about the fact that a few weeks ago, I caught the tail end of the Jacob Lawrence migration series oh, yeah. at the MoMA, which um, was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, just, I'm sorry, I missed that. Yeah, I mean, you just, there are no words. Um, and. So you watch, you watch, you walk through when you see uh, the, the whole series, which it's probably still online. It's nothing like actually being there, but um, I would encourage you to, to 
take a look. And so he has panels actually capturing precisely this dynamic, right? And it actually echoes some of the things that Melissa was talking about. So know your place in the South was all about particular norms of how you interacted with people, which you had to have. My people are from the South, too. They're still there. Um, and Selma is, is where my people are. But um, you, know, you had to because there was so much interaction and because the place itself, the spaces, weren't um, as, as segregated. But Lawrence has this amazing panel we're talking about how in the North, the way this worked was precisely about making race and space sort of coincident in particular ways. And you know, I'm sure many of you have read the Ta-Nehisi Coates piece on reparations where he talks about sort of how that's created with redlining and, right. um, and, and racial covenants and, um, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so it's just two different sides of the same kind of thing. Now, the reason why I was looking at you when you said they, the North hasn't had its reckoning, well, did the, I'm not sure that the South did, number one, right. which is what this project is, is about. And you know, number two, I guess that's what's happening now. You guess that's what's happening now in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, in terms of yeah. And you think that's a, a reckoning that's focused on the North, or is that? I think, yes, yeah, I, I do. <laughs> yeah. More so, because the, the, the incidents that, that uh, a lot of the incidents that have sort of galvanized the movement have happened in the North, but not exclusively. No, not, ex not exclusively, but I think most of them have happened. And it's also an urban phenomenon. Right. And you know, and the North is urban, and that's not to say that there aren't cities in, in the South. But. So just to make sure that I, I'm getting what you're saying, so you're saying I have to say I haven't really thought about this until this moment. So <laughs> okay. Like you know, in an hour I might change my mind. Um, <laughs> uh, that'll be part two. Um, uh, so 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 you're saying that the reason why we have. Um, much, uh, uh, much more segregated cities in the north is essentially because there are cities in the north in a way that there weren't in the same way in the south, that, that those were already um, desegregated communities in terms of where people lived. They were segregated more in terms of moors and laws. Is that right? So I, I, I want to back up from the reason. The last thing you said about it is true that in the south there was much less, and I think continues to be, right. um, much less segregation in terms of where people live. Right. And that it was both, and the, the, the relationships were managed through explicit law and through norms because black people always lived amongst white people right. in the South. That was always true. Right. Um, and that when there was migration to the North, at first, the populations were small enough so that you know, people, I think, just sort of went where they were. And then the people in the North decided, actually, to adopt explicit policies to contain to keep, people. Right. Um, and we know that's true in Chicago and for sure. Um, Detroit, Detroit, I mean, we can go yeah, down yeah. Right. The, the list of, of cities. Boston. Right. Boston, for sure. Um, and that, I think, sort of one consequence 
of that po both political and policy reality is the kind of policing that we have in the North. And so do you think that the kind of policing that we have in the North is, is in some fundamental way different from what we see in the South? So that's where I get to the sort of urban city thing, right. yes. Because I think big city policing is just different from not big city policing, and there are just more cities. Right. So I want to talk about your, your work on, on, um, on Obama's commission. But I, I, before that, I, I want to get into this notion of we're being in, and this being a reckoning period. Um, uh, do you think that that is because, um, why, why do you think that is? Is that because we have become aware of all of these incidents because of the proliferation of cameras on phones and social media allows us to learn of these um, incidents uh, uh, in a way that we couldn't before? Or is there something else going on? Well, that, I, I, I think there's a certain element of it. I mean, you know, um, these things have been happening for a while. As now it's people, I think, are prepared to believe, right? Um, because there's because, because there's, there's kind of evidence. I right. think that some of that is true. Um, there has uh, this won't be a surprise when you have an um, and this is true in all kinds of cases, murder cases. Well, one person is dead, one party is dead, yeah. so that story is forever unknown. Um, and when it, and when and and when the, the perpetrator um, um, involved, one of the shooters is a police person, um, they get the benefit of the doubt. There's a certain deference, and we all kind of see that, and there may be good reasons for that, um, except when um, there's a question of the, the murder, I mean, you know, the, the basis of it, the, the reason for it. And, I, and, and there's always been some dispute about the, uh, uh, the view of the over-policing of minority neighborhoods, either under-policing or over-policing, right? Um, um, and I do think, though, that the cameras um, have been a big part of it. But I think what the Ferguson uh, showed, the Ferguson incident and Mike Brown incident showed, was that we had this murder. But then the tipping point, when people came out in the streets and really were angry, is because it, they pointed to not just a murder, but the constant basis of the interactions between whites and black, I mean, right. between blacks and the police forces, in which it became known that basically blacks were like a source of revenue. Right. Um, and that had been something that had been going on forever, right? Where you get a ticket and you end up in, you know, we've all heard about it now, right? So we're, and that, the notion of, of policing being more than about criminal, you know, supposedly, I mean, basically creating crimes, right? Like, you know, you, you know, if you read some parts of that Ferguson report, if you were black walking down the street, you were subject to some, you know, the arbitrary nature of that right. at the end, right? You know, well, it, it would appear to be arbitrary, um, except if you understand the logic of yeah, right. revenue generation, right? Violates any notion of civil liberties, right? right? You can't, that, you know, uh, you know, that is a complete negation of any notion of living in a free society. None of us would look at, read that story about Ferguson and think that's a free society. If we took out Ferguson, you know, Missouri, and put in, you know, Russia something under, we'd be, oh yes, of course, this is horrible. Right. right. <laughs> so there is a way in which, so the Mike Brown murder was in itself its own problem, but it also revealed, right, 
what else was going on, right? And that is then a much larger question of the relationship of black citizens to the American state, right? Kind of what is our status as citizens? So the, the Black Lives Movement is kind of calling that back into question, right? The Civil Rights Movement said, look, we are, we are, you know, we are equal, we, you know, we have to vote, this and that. In the 21st century, again, we're asking, what is the status of black American citizenship? What does it mean to be a black citizen in the United States, right? In an age of a black president. Right. Ah. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering when you were going to bring. Oh, I just want to bring. Yeah, but that is my handoff to you. Yeah, I actually think <laughs> that that is. You know, when you say, "Is it the social media?" You can't. It's hard to disentangle sure. particular things, but I think there is a, a you know a constellation of things that I would bring together, and you know, Melissa's already touched on many of them, um, including the fact that this is happening after two thousand eight, but. Let me add a couple of other things. You mean in our post-racial society? Right. <laughs> um, right. There was Jim Crow. It's over. Now right. we have a black president. Um, but let me add a couple of other things to the mix, um, which is, you know, adds to this, what does it mean to be uh, a citizen? So one way of understanding what it means to be a citizen is that your government works for you and does things for you and helps you and protects you. So we now live in a world in which policing justifies itself by being good crime fighters. Now, you have to understand that that's a relatively recent development, right? And the notion of policing? Oh, yeah. Right. Right. So you know, I'm looking out. There are lots of students in, in the room. Basically, if you looked at any research involving policing from sort of 1995 to 2000, I'll just like pick a book, David Bailey, he would say, you know, there is no credible evidence that police can do anything about crime. This is a myth. Police will tell you that they should have more resources. But no one can actually show that putting more police in a particular place is going to do anything about crime. What we have police for is to respond to crime, solve the crime, a la law and order. And maybe that will happen. But you know, that's, that's not how we're justifying the existence of police. And then suddenly, around 2000, that changed. There were these economists. Maybe you listened to Freakonomics. I don't know. Steve Levitt figures out the amazing instrument so he can do the statistical regression to figure this out. Whoa. Police make a difference. This was huge, because it meant that all of these police executives could go around and say, we make a difference. Public safety is our warrant. We are going to go out and help people in high crime areas. Where do those people live? In big cities in the north. right? So Bloomberg, Ray Kelly, all of these people, we're going to do stop and frisk. We're going to do all of this stuff. And we're going to show that it is reducing the murder rate. And who's benefiting? Black people. We're helping black people. And if it's a cost for them to have their autonomy and privacy interests um, interfered with, well, you know, they're getting a really serious benefit too, right? So public safety becomes the justification for policing and also is a way of constructing citizenship. But what's forgotten? What's forgotten in this? Um, is a way of constructing citizenship in the sense 
that, that they're paying attention. Because historically, right, right. in this other period, you know, there was all kinds of, you they're know. paying attention to crime. To and, crime, right. right? That wasn't happening. That was one of the problems in, during, you know, the Kerner Commission. Right. That was pointed out. Randy Kennedy's first book on race, crime, and the law is like, wait a minute. There's an under-policing problem here, too. Like, the state isn't paying attention to the fact that so many people of color, black people in particular, are being killed. So like now they're paying attention to it, but they're paying attention to it in a very particular way that has costs for this group. And what people are forgetting is that there is another part of the, you know, the equation that people care about. And they care about being secure um, from, you know, they care about security from predation by the state. Both of those things are true. <laughs> like you, you don't want private predation, so you should police. You should, you know, help keep me safe. But in this, at the same time, you know, you shouldn't do that by, you know, killing me. You know, <laughs> it's pretty basic. That that doesn't seem like that radical an idea. Um, but uh, is that something, is that, is that a notion that is getting pushback from, from police departments, from law enforcement agencies? Well, it's interesting. I mean, so, you know, one of the things that we did on the president's task force was talk about the importance of um, promoting public trust while also promoting public safety. And so, you know, a lot of the work that I've done over the last, you know, decade and a half or so has been about you know, these ideas of promoting policing with procedural justice and legitimacy being very targeted, not sort of going out and arresting people. There are very, you know, particular strategies you can use to both be effective, but also to enhance trust. And the research is quite clear that when people have confidence in legal authority and in the law, they actually decide to voluntarily comply with the law. So enhancing trust is its own crime-fighting strategy, uh, essentially. So essentially, the, the opposite of stop and frisk could be another way to reduce it, the broken windows yes, theory. Right. 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 Um, and so you know, there was a guy on the task force who was a, a national union representative, Sean Smoot, who is a leader, actually, in passing laws about not having financial gain be the motivation for policing. He actually passed a, had a law, introduced a law, and had it passed in the state of Illinois before the whole Ferguson thing came out. Meaning what, not having financial gain? So you can't sort of stop and arrest oh, people oh, in oh, order right, right, to right. make money. Yeah, yeah. You know, it actually right. has to be for right. a public safety reason. Right, right. Um, you know, things like that. Um, so, you know, I think it is clear that policing agencies and the unions in particular um, feel under attack. But if you get down to the sort of local, um, you know, the more local level unions, you know, they understand the importance of building these trust relationships. It's, it's, it's complicated and, it, and it's hard, but um, I do think this sort of, you know, crime control is its own, you know, is self-justifying, is, is fueling this dynamic that Melissa was describing. And crime control is fueling this dynamic, and, and uh, despite the fact that we're at a, a historically <laughs> low um, in terms of crime in the country, or yeah. a historically low period. Right. Um, so so uh, last year, when the two uh, NYPD officers were killed, um, one thing that struck me was how 
through whatever prism I was observing this through social media, there was this, um, there was uh, Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter were set up as if they were in opposition to each other, um, which uh, I found a little bit uh, alarming, although I guess not that surprising once I thought about it more. Um, is there a way that uh, these large police forces can be um, can can sort of become part of the solution and and not think of themselves as in this adversarial relationship? Yes, I mean I I think you know to understand that just going back to what I just said that if you are willing to work with people in the communities in which you are providing public safety to enhance trust, that will be a strategy that works for you. It's just, it's hard for them to do that when they've been trained not to do that. Everything about their training is about understanding the public as dangers to them and, and to their safety. Number one, they define their safety in very narrow ways. So, you know, you'll I'll talk to police officers and they will say, I just want to get home to my family. And I will say, you know, that's great. But if you think about it, that's a really narrow way of understanding your safety. How about getting home to your family in, in an emotionally healthy way? Yeah, right. In a way that you can actually, you know, interact with your partner and, and your children. You know, police officers have one of the highest suicide rates of right. any profession. They have really high, you know, uh, heart disease. It's a very stressful job. And so getting them to understand that these kinds of strategies that we have been advocating in terms of legitimacy, procedural justice, and building trust not only encourages members of the public to voluntarily comply with the law, it makes interactions more peaceful, it lessens the risk that they will be harmed physically, and it just makes the job less stressful. Right. Like, everybody's happier. Um, so one last thing I want to I get to before we open this up. Um, the, the discussions that the country is having uh, right now about these issues seem, in a very fundamental way, different from conversations that we've had about race, at least in my lifetime. Um, so obviously not going back to Reconstruction, uh, um, which, which in some ways gives me, makes me optimistic, uh, because it seems like having these conversations is a sort of requirement for then figuring out what to do. Uh, at the same time, I see efforts to roll back some of the advances of the Voting Rights Act um, and the uh, uh, kind of full-throated support of policies like that, and that makes me a little bit despondent. Um, so I'm curious uh, where your emotional, uh, where, where, where you fall, if what's happening today is making you more or less optimistic for the future of the country and, and race relations in the future of the country. I, I would say I'm, I'm surprisingly kind of optimistic. Um, in part because I think what I like most about the Black Lives Movement is that for most of the 20th century, the Civil Rights Movement, NAACP, 
And I should say here that were it not for the NAACP, I don't know where black Americans would be, frankly. You know, I really, I thought I appreciated it, and then I started doing my research, and we read through their papers, and Thurgood Marshall, and this, you know, this guy Charles McPherson who ran the Birmingham office. He was a, a physician, but also the president of the chapter, and uh, you know, worked under extreme circumstances. Right. You know, you think about all that they did. Okay, fine. Uh, but one of the things that the, that the NAACP also did as a strategic matter in the 20th century was always a concern about black respectability, mm -hmm. right? That a notion of our citizenship, we had to prove that we were worthy to be right. citizens, right? Um, and um, you know, so there was a policing of that. And the Black Lives Matters movement is like, we're done with all that, right? right? Whether we're criminals or not, whatever that is, we are citizens, and there are structures to deal with that, and they ought to deal with us as you deal with other people who are accused of crimes. Um, so we've decided to kind of take that off the table, right? That that's not a, a way to think about how we're going to assert our rights in the 21st century. We are human beings. We're citizens. Our criminal, our you know, whether we've done something wrong or not, there are reasons to. Do, there there is a process to do it. It's called a court, and not the police and others who decide to be the the judge and the executioner. Right? We have ways to do it. So. I'm encouraged by the Black Lives Movement because it's kind of eschewed black respectability. So we're done with that. That's look, we're here. Right. We're here. We're queer. You know, we're 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 here. And that in that way, I think it's opening up. You know, in that way, it's kind of in, in it's speaking to all kinds of movements, right? Where people are saying we are who we are. Deal with it, right? We're just, and we're citizens. We want our rights, and we're not qualifying it, and we're not doing any of that. And you, you know, we pay our taxes. We're here. Treat us. Treat us fairly. It seems to me that so I'm encouraged by that. That's what I find encouraging. There is it isn't wrapped up in the whole morality anymore, you know, about and, and not even appealing to American conscience. You know, a big part of the civil rights movement was, you know, America's conscience and the rest of it. We're done with that too in the 21st century, right? Right. Enough. And I, I I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by it's kind of it's just no nonsense. It's young people. They, they, I had a friend who went to a Black Lives Matters movement um, meeting of organizers, which, by the way, are run by a lot of women, by the way. And, um, and these women are completely irreverent. So they're like non-deferential. So you have you know, the pillars of the civil rights movement, people who, Bob Moses, people who you look to with some deference. And they ought to be, you know, given what they did for the civil rights movement, there is a certain amount of respect that's due them. Um, I think these young women respect them, but they also feel like it's our century, it's our time, it's us, we're doing it. I like all of that. Right. And so I'm encouraged, I'm really encouraged by it. Um, and, um, and even though it is a frightening time, um, I think there are, there are allies out there who are, who, are, who are mindful. Just the idea that the Black Lives Matter has become like a tagline and people qualify it and talk about it, but we're talking about it in a different kind of way. It strikes me as... a a good time. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Hmm. So you can be not hopeful. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, so everything that Melissa said, I agree with. And I can see why focusing on that part of it is encouraging. Here's the part that worries me. Okay. If you look at the success of the civil rights movement, or even um, you know the sort of latest successes of immigration rights and the like. Almost every one of those movements had a legal target. Right. So think about the ones that don't. Right. That's true. And weren't successful. Occupy anybody? You know? 
What was the legal target there? There wasn't. And, and the fact that you might need a legal target in order to be really successful is worrisome to me. Because, so let me just take some of the points sure. that you made. You know, the idea that, um, you know, sort of all lives matter, we're gonna just, you know, we're here, we're gonna take, so we have, just focusing on the criminal justice system, a way of organizing our legal system here that places primacy on innocence. And we have these tropes, right, that will let 10 guilty people go free to, to protect this innocent person, which actually really doesn't happen. But sort of the, the, <laughs> the, the, the system is organized around innocence, such that you know we have all these innocence projects, and I'm really happy about that. But like, there are a lot of people who really are guilty who don't get treated fairly right. at all, right? right? And if you think about a different way we could organize our system, again, let me look to France. Um, they don't organize their system. Most of the Western European countries don't, but let me use France in particular. They don't organize their system in that way. When you go to court in France, pretty much everybody assumes you're guilty. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they don't have the same kind of you know, procedural safeguards that we do, and yet their system is set up so that people who are guilty are almost always treated with mercy. And, you know, in Europe, people don't go to prison as long. And they're guilty, right? And if you've seen, uh, I think it's either an Icelandic, I think it's an Icelandic or a Finnish prison, it's amazing, and, you know, so on and so forth, right? I don't see how we get there, for example. Okay, now outside of the criminal justice system, you know, once we have a world in which there is legal equality, which technically we do, you know, the issue here is really about fundamental redistribution of resources or a kind of government intervention that we can call reparations, but, you know, is really about redistribution <laughs> of resources. You know, what's the legal target for that? I, you know, it's, it's like we have to have a different government. And, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not only the legal target, it's just it, in addition to that, it's that the mindset of the country seems so removed, I mean, so far away from that. Right. Even while yes. the country, I think, as you pointed out, is sort of understanding that there is something deeply, fundamentally, and horribly wrong. We're having the conversation. We are having the conversation. conversation. It's just hard for me to see how we get there. That's I mean, there is, there, there, well, I mean, is criminal justice reform a way that, yeah, I don't know, I'm trying well, to. Well, so <laughs> I focus on that in all honesty because I actually think it's easier than the, re, right? I actually think it's easier to get you strike me as someone who searches for the easier path and then <laughs> I think it's easier to get fair policing. I, I've done a lot of work on violence reduction strategies because it's easier to save someone's life than it is to turn somebody's life around. You know? So I've done all of this work in Chicago that's about, you know, keeping people from shooting each other. Right. Um, and at the end of the day, You'll talk to people in foundations, and they'll say, "Oh, it has to be the social service component of you know your strategy." And I was like, "No, you know, maybe ten percent of people 
ever stepped foot in the social service component that we offer right. to the people who are involved in it as, you know, there, it's a long, complicated reason why we do, and I don't know if that is really relevant to this forum, but the point is, is that all I can say is that people are not dead. That is not the same thing as saying that a person has learned how to read, that they've graduated from high school, that they have a job, that they um, are staying, uh, that they are you know, fully involved in their children's lives and that people are flourishing. You know, not being dead is not the same thing as flourishing. So I'm not hopeful, sorry. On that optimistic note, <laughs> I will, uh, I'll open it up to the audience. And um, if you could please go to one of the microphones. Uh, yeah, if you could just go to, to one, we have two microphones, uh, um, that would be great. Thank you. So tall. Hello? Yeah. Hello. Hi. Okay. Um, many things are in my head. Um, so if it's a little bit off, um, it's because many things are in my head. Um, Melissa, you actually hit on something that I wanted to start my questions with, um, and that is the role of the, um, the decision of the civil rights movement to go in a certain direction um, was a lot more complicated than we've been told, talking about that story, so unpacking mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So uh, a friend of mine's father was very important in the NAACP in a certain state, maybe Mississippi, I think. And she called me one night since I've been working here. Her father had passed, and she went through his records and found out that there were huge arguments about whether to go for plurality or integration. And within the NAACP and outside of the NAACP, the arguments were very, very uh, heated, and people made some decisions that they made. And um, I have since uh, interpreted that and layered it in a certain way, and that is, that the decision was made to focus on certain portions of what was happening in the South, and that other things were kind of ignored so that you could have a something doable, because it was hugely big, and every state had lynchings. Every state had a lot of things. Right. And so when you think about that, they were ignoring what was going on in the urban areas, and I'm from Los Angeles, which is you know, one of the major places that this was taking place. And so ignoring the segregation, ignoring the uh, despair of the people, ignoring all of this, uh, and by 1964, uh, New York explodes, and in 1965, uh, Los Angeles explodes, and people said, what about us? I mean, that was, if we had said Black Lives Matter, then it was, what about us? We have things that we're looking at. Why are you always shooting us up and beating us up and all of that? So I think that part of what we are doing here is, um, I think in the I Ching or something, it says that if you don't finish something, it's going to come back. And I always thought that if you have a little piece of a plant that's poison or whatever, it will grow again in a certain way. So the North has been actually the question about whether or not we're ever going to have a civil right movement, a, a civil society, because of all of the, the, once people escape and they go to a place that's totally segregated, certainly by the, by the 60s that was true, but as early as uh, uh, the 1890s, 
uh, after they sort of disarmed us after the Civil War, which is what one of my friends said, it wasn't called, shouldn't be called reinstruction, it should be called the disarming of the black population after the Civil War. They had to make it clear that they wanted nothing to change in as many places as they could possibly do. So they went and kidnapped us and took us back to the South, or they shot us down, or they lynched us. And lynching actually was at its highest in 1930s, not its lowest. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were killing people right and left. And if you look at uh, uh, the, um, the way in which uh, the, uh, Los Angeles is constructed, because it is seriously uh, one of these cities that has been understudied. And my relatives are in, the mil in, in all sides of it. My relatives are in the police, and they're also in jail. So you can see the whole, the whole scandal. Um, that actually means that the work was not done. And that's why it's so difficult. And what you said you know, about, uh-oh, where are we going to start with this is really the issue. It's not where are we going to continue. It's where we're going to start. There are people living in these cities in conditions much worse than the rural areas that we're talking about. People who've never had any opportunity, schools falling apart, et cetera. So I wanted to just say that I think that's part of the segregation. It is so entrenched and so rigid and so horrific, you know? And I can recall, I'm very much of a militant. You know, my hair's been like this since 60 whatever. <laughs> um, and I can recall one of my relatives showing up supposedly undercover you know, he's a policeman. And I said, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> and my brother said the same thing. He was at my school trying to be undercover, looking all copish, you know. <laughs> and so we had this whole battle within our family about what are the police for and who are you for? Are you going to shoot somebody? What's going on here? So in order to deal with that, you have to have a whole new construct and understand why Harold Cruz finally wrote Plural But Equal because it was so obvious to him, even in the crisis of the black intellectual, that something was wrong with the civil rights movement. And he wasn't able to articulate it until he got to plural but equal. Mm -hmm. Unless we do that, unless we look at it, what, what the pursuit of plurality could do today, like it could have done then, we're in a place where we have not even begun to think about how you actually liberate people and have them. And this has nothing, this is the NAACP's, uh, and some of these people, uh, talent and tith bullshit, yeah. but that's that's what it is. And people are um, they don't they're 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 feeling that they don't want to be characterized in certain ways. They don't want to acknowledge. We used to say pretend like we could hide what we do. You know, we don't want to talk about this in front of white people. And one time I said to some people, "Are you you think they don't know? I mean, what are we not talking about?" But what it is horrible. There are things that are so horrible and things that we've done and things that we've experienced that are just so terrible because we come out of despair, right? And other people that just magnificently rise above it. And how do we do that is the real issue. And how do we make sure that the society does not interfere with our ability to be whoever we are is the issue. And, and that's okay. I'm going to defend, as Richard Pryor said, the thugs in the, in the Arizona State Penitentiary. I just saw him the other night on a commercial. And he said, some of those people don't ever need to get out. And he said, I was very naive. I thought that black people you know, were there because of the struggle. And he said, I met some of these brothers. And he said, I said to one of them, why'd you kill everybody in the house? And he said, because they was there. <laughs> so that came out of a black man's mouth. And what we need to figure out is how to get at this in a certain way. 
So I'm, I, I know that's not a question, but I wonder what you think. I wonder what you think of what I'm saying and where this might lead us to to bring it open. Okay. Thank you. Well, I think um, what's for sure is that the debates within black communities about you know the prop strategizing has always been complicated, and we necessarily collapsed it and made it more um, simplistic than it actually is. So I well appreciate, as you said, that many places, you know, there's been a lot of robust discussion. And each movement makes a decision at the time about what they imagine, what they think, given the information before them, mm -hmm. what will work. And the same movement, the same decisions are being made now about Black Lives Matter. And they may have made some right decisions. They may well have made some wrong decisions. Time will tell, right? Um, and but while we may look back at the civil rights movement and think, oh, the NAACP, as I suggested, made some strategic decisions about how they were going to present uh, um, African-American uh, aspirations. Um, but there's a reason, you know, there was a reason why they did it. And at the time, it may have made some sense, right? You're kind of responding to the cues that you're getting, right? So you all are immoral, right? You are this, you are that. So how do you go against that? You talk about your morality. You talk about your uprightness. Women have had to deal with that. You are this and that. So you respond to it. In, in, on retrospect, everyone has the luxury of hindsight to say, don't let the people set the terms. right? I mean, don't let your opposition set your terms. But the fact of the matter is that that's how struggles are done, right? I mean, that's you know, right. you, 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 you deal the, you work with the dark cards of which you dealt, and you use the language that you know. Um, so I don't want to be overly condemned. I, I didn't in all mean to oversimplify and or be overly condemned to condemn the NWCP, but rather to reflect that in the 21st century, we live in a different, we have a different political language. Right. And I, I'm embracing that language because I think it's suitable for where we are now. Can I just add just a word to that, which is, you know, to point out the costs of particular strategies is not the same thing as saying, were I to do it over again, I would do it differently. totally differently. Right, exactly. Because you might not have an option, really, right. to do it differently. Right. And Melissa's right, the NAACP achieved amazing things, amazing things. It is also true that the path that the organization chose to achieve those amazing things has particular costs for us today. Right. That, that's just recognizing the reality. And can you ID yourself also just for yes. posterity's sake? Yes, hello, I'm Arthur Berger, um, and appreciate your, your comments very much. Um, and my question is regarding the uh, uh, the successes that the Black Lives Movement uh, matters can uh, lead to, and um, the concern that was raised that uh, there, at this point there doesn't seem to be a legal target uh, that it's aiming towards. Um, and you point to an example of the Occupy movement, which was a failure in that regard. And I'd like to relate that concern with uh, the initial comments Professor Noble uh, made uh, talking to the Jim Crow period where the aspect of the expected behavior of black people. And your last sentence you said was, was uh, legislation's not gonna solve that. Uh, so I'd like to take, if you could comment that comment with uh, uh, strategy uh, that you'd recommend for success in the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. Thank you. 
Thank you. The problem with asking you two to do this is now you need to come up with solutions to all of the problems. No, I'm going to leave it to Tracy, but I will say this, though, <laughs> that, um, that one part of it is, while it's not legal, it, and I'm going to leave it to you in part because you've been working on this, that the, the working with police practices, right, kind of looking at, because so much of these things turn on those interactions, right, and the videotape has given us a view of that to the degree that um, you know, we have them. Um, but in describing, so I, so I guess while it's not legal, it is getting at um, better training police mm -hmm. right, on how to interact with citizens. And in turn, for citizens also to, to learn a bit more about how to interact with police. Um, and, uh, but assuming that both are coming from a place of we want to work better together and we don't want what should be relatively minor incidents turned into deaths. If that is, right, so that what should be at the top of this, uh, this is why I think Black Lives Matter so much, is that it should be, we should all be concerned about the, the preservation of life of the policeman and the citizen, that that life has to be, because it can't be that you, a cop stops you for some BS traffic stop and you're dead. Right. I mean, that just can't be. That just, that cannot be an acceptable way that our society operates. And that's, and that comes to police practices, it comes to citizen awareness, it comes to social interactions, all of these things that have been a big part of our societal relations. And that's why I mentioned the Jim Crow period was based upon mm. you know, known cues of how blacks were supposed to act. And if you didn't act a certain way, that was licensed to lynch you. I think that's right. Um, you know, so, so there are two ways in which you might say that it's, it's not legal. So you know, a quick 20-second primer on the procedural justice stuff that I talk about. We know that the way that the public assesses whether police or any other person in legal authority are acting fairly is with respect to four things. One, whether you're treated with dignity and respect. Two, whether the decisions that this person is making are interpreted by the relevant target. So if I'm the cop, you're the target. The decision that I make is fair, is it neutral, is it based in fact, do I do things like say to you, the reason why I stopped you is whatever, um, even if it's a BS reason. Even if it's a <laughs> but BS like reason, I've, but you, you have know, to articulate I've, it. Okay. I've said it. Um, three, do I give you a chance to tell your side of the story? People really care about that, even when telling your side of the story isn't going to make any difference to the outcome. And four, can, am I acting in a way that cultivates an expectation in your eyes that I will treat you benevolently in the future? So this fourth one is impacted by all sorts of things, who your friends are, you know, are you a black person? And you look at the TV and you see that black people are treated in a certain way. So of course I don't expect police to treat me benevolently. Were you a victim of crime in the past and the police didn't show? All these kinds of things, okay? Those are the things that really matter and there's all kinds of training that you can do for police that teach them about that. I've developed some myself with my colleague Tom Tyler. We're doing this all over the, the country. Um, and so you can train people. But the thing that's interesting about these four factors is that like, a typical way of thinking about legitimacy of police is to say, well, they should just be lawful. They should act consistently with constitutional law. That's really, really important. Well, the common law doesn't really have anything to do with those things. So that's the it's hard to legislate right. part. 
right? So the court says in a case called Wren versus the United States that as long as a police officer has probable cause to believe that you've broken a law, traffic law, then they're pulling you over is fine, even if the reason why they're pulling you over has nothing to do with the fact that they really care, in Sandra Bland's case, that she, what did she do? Didn't Just do the turn oh, signal. Like, right, right, right. Like, you know the guy didn't really care about that. That really wasn't why he stopped it. But the court has said, that's OK. The, there's nothing about the Fourth Amendment that says you have to tell somebody why you stopped the person. Nothing in the Fourth Amendment says that you have to treat someone with dignity and respect. That part is the, you know, the part that's, right. what are you going to do? Legislate. What you can do is legislate. You have to do this kind of training. You can legislate. You have to um, train your officers to be sensitive to implicit bias. That kind of stuff you can do. And the, but the training itself comes from a different expertise that's not so much about what the law right. says, or it's not about just ob obey constitutional law. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't want to be overly simplistic here, but it is, is um, in the absence of legislation, is something as simple as body cameras, uh, is that an instrument that can kind of force some of those changes? Well, some of it. I mean, there's some you know, real nascent research that shows that when cops are wearing body cameras, there are many fewer complaints. Right. Um, the cops act differently. Right. The person. Everyone acts differently. Everybody acts differently. But that stuff's really new, right? You know, one wonders about what's going to happen when the body cameras become the new normal and you know, people. There's, it's amazing that we see the kind of things that we see when the cops know. <laughs> that people are filming them. And sometimes they know, sometimes yeah, they right. don't, but whatever. Right. Um, that, I think that's why in the President's Task Force, we actually did have a lot to say about body cameras, because the technology changes so quickly. I do think body cameras give us lots of options for good training. right? So it's less about evidence of wrongdoing and more about opportunities to actually see how these interactions go. How and then do after the fact training, right. right? And you know, and figure out whether the training actually makes a behavioral difference in the way that we expect it to, um, you know, things like that. It's clearly um, an important opportunity. That's obviously true. Oh, sorry. Blah blah blah. Hi, uh, I'm Sasha Costanza Chuck from Comparative Media Studies. Um, thank you so much for this this talk. Um, so I have three questions. Um, the first one is, uh, actually the first one is a little less of a, of a question and it's more of a response to the um, sort of conversation about the lack of a policy proposals. I don't think that's true at all. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just briefly read the 10 point policy proposal from Campaign Zero uh, launched a couple that's of weeks new. ago. That's new. Okay. The Campaign couple, Zero is different from the Black Lives Matter, but okay. Launched a couple of weeks ago by some yep. key activists from Black Lives Matter. Yep. I mean, I'm not saying Black Lives Matter as a movement has embraced them, but it's important for people in the room who might not be yep. following it that closely to know. So, you know. One, point one, end broken windows policing. Point two, community oversight yeah. boards. Point three, limit the use of force in all interactions. Point four, independent investigations and prosecution of, uh, you know, of police. Uh, point five is community representation. I'm not sure how that's different than the community oversight board. Um, six is body cams and film the police, so organized citizen surveillance of police. Seven is improved training. Eight is an end of for-profit policing. Um, so. Uh, quota systems, payment based on. Uh, nine is demilitarization, so that includes some specific policy proposals about ending the pipeline of, um, you know, surplus military weaponry right. 
in two local police forces, and 10 is fair police union contracts. So they include that as well. Mm -hmm. um, so my first question is about what do you think about the campaign zero <laughs> proposals? Um, the second one is about, um, it was something that you were describing earlier in terms of the, um, the shift in argumentation about the reason uh, for police and the way that they're able to mobilize statistics to talk about, um, well, more pre police presence means reduced crime and so on. It's a really, I guess, dark question about the evolution of the predictive policing systems and algorithms, and I'm thinking of you know, uh, the crime stat systems that have been uh, now adopted uh, by many, many local agencies, and the idea that Oscar Gandhi raises uh, in some of his work um, around the, um, what does he call it? Well, the, en the endless loop of algorithmic policing. So basically, you know, you allocate resources based on uh, crimes that are in your database, but the crimes that are in the database are based on the previous allocation of police to police communities of color and black communities specifically. So then you put more police there, and then, of course, they're going to note right. more crimes. And so the database will always tell you, put more police here in a right. black community. Um, so yeah. as those systems unquestioningly get adopted, you know, more and more widely. I mean, how do we how do we escape that that trap? And then the last one is more hopeful. It's um, a sort of question about. So that one's for Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, which one? The hopeful one? Yeah, or the hopeful not? one. Like, Obviously. So the hope, hope she's changed. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, <laughs> so the hopeful one is about um, the um, the question about the possibility of larger shifts and transformations. And I do think there's a really interesting moment happening in terms of broader criminal justice reform. So even, even just in the last couple of weeks. So um, last week, Ella Baker Center and Strong Families Forward Together launched a national report called Who Pays? Um, about the costs, who bears the cost of incarceration. Um, and it's looking at the cost of families of having a loved one inside, mm -hmm. um, you know, $13,580 something dollars per year, um, born by, you know, 84% of the costs are born by women, mothers, grandmothers, wives, sometimes daughters. Um, that report, which was a community-based participatory research action report, got covered in, you know, the New York Times, The Nation, CNN, Al Jazeera, uh, the Atlantic, I mean, just goes on and on and on. And now this week, the, the TV co coverage is starting to, to pop and come out. Like that's, it's hard to imagine that just a couple of years ago, a community-based participatory research report about mass incarceration would become part of a national conversation. You know, the president, a sitting president visiting um, a prison, a prison um, isn't there, it, isn't this leading towards or hope, aren't these signs of hope towards the possibility of, of a shift? <laughs> yeah. So that's a lot of questions, sorry, I'll just stop. All right, so I'll be really quick so you can hear from hope. Um, so Campaign Zero, that's new, right? If you actually look at the Black Lives Matter platform, um, it was really interestingly devoid of any kind of legal target, and to the extent that it did have legal targets, it had things that actually, if you're looking at it as a lawyer, and I want to be clear, I have great admiration for this, but you're looking at it, you're just like, that's not going to happen. So for example, it's the kind of thing where the attorney general needs to investigate <laughs> every police officer who um, you know, kills a civilian. It's like, it's that just seems unrealistic fun to you. Well, <laughs> it's not whether it's unreal. It's just like a fundamental misunderstanding right, of the way right. the government in this country works, right? That the you know the federal government just doesn't, doesn't do that. You know that's what federalism is. You know, for example, 
um, things like that. So Campaign Zero is a platform that was developed in part by my friend and fellow task force member, Brittany Packnett, and almost, I would say, eight out of the 10 of them actually came from the president's task force report. So those were our recommendations. Um, not all of them are legal targets in the sense that I'm talking about that I think historically have shown to be parts of successful organizing. So while I think they're good ideas, I'm just not sure, right? That's, that's my point. If you think about the way social movements work, there's a reason why the NAACP <laughs> picked the kinds of right. targets that it did that actually helped to mobilize the movement and why right. you know, King's subsequent strategy was not as successful. And that doesn't mean that I don't think that his strategy, his policy proposals, were, of course I do. That's why we're here. We haven't been able to do it yet. So that's the first comment on that. Um, the thing about the, you know, the, the policing and the predictive policing, it's interesting. Um, if you want to read a really interesting piece about that, there's a piece by David Sklansky um, it's, uh, in this Harvard Kennedy School series from the executive session on policing, which I participated in. My own piece in that series is called Rightful Policing. His piece is called The Puzzling Persistence of Police Professionalism. Love that alliteration. Go, David. Right? And so you know, he talks about there's always the next new thing, including predictive policing. Um, I don't think it's as dark as you might think, because police just really aren't that good as a general matter. Um, and you know, I don't want to make it seem like I'm like, you know, I do a lot of work with police. I think we need them. I want them to be better. Right? But there are 18,000 policing agencies in this country. Um, we talk about 20 of them. Only half of them have more than 50 officers. This is what I'm talking about, right. this urban police. You know, this right. is like, for most of them, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about just, you know, just doesn't matter. You know, and certainly predictive policing is not because they don't have any kind of a sophisticated, you know, deployment strategy, know where people are, all of that kind of stuff. Now, everything you've said sort of does matter for New York well, um, and matters for Chicago. And, you know, and for those people, we have both evidence but also recommendations about how to do policing smarter, which is not just about sending hundreds of people to a particular place again and again and again. Just in, in New York and Chicago. Don't forget hope, though. No, 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 no hope I know, is I know. Okay. But you have like a, a 20th of down. the country, right? So it's, <laughs> it, I mean, even though it, we only talk about 10 or 20 of these police forces, they represent a hugely outsized they portion do, of the country. They do, except that, remember, the unions represent everybody. Right. And so th th this yeah, is yeah, right. sort of an issue, right? I mean, it would be different if you know, you could imagine just if we're just focusing on those 20 policing agencies and they had their own union and you know, they didn't sort of think about the ways in which they were connected to right, you right. Know, the Fergusons and so on and of the world. But it just doesn't work that right. way. And every one of these agencies is located in a state. And some of them get federal funding, and some don't. And some have Republican governors, and some don't. And it's right. it's a challenge. The hope is down. No, go to the next. <laughs> and I think it's been well. I, I don't have much to add. I mean, I, I thought your comments 
about you know where you felt hopeful seemed you know okay with me. I can't. <laughs> despair is winning out. So. <laughs> more questions? We probably have time for one or two more. So we'll make these two the, the last two questions. Uh, could, could you uh, make comments on... So just uh, identify yourself. I, I'm sorry. I'm John Ivester. Uh, could you make a comment on uh, the reconciliation and the uh, part of the, the program that you're working on, Melissa? Sure. Um, so uh, the reconciliation uh, dimensions of it are quite individualistic. They, can't, they relate to each particular case that we uh, look at. Uh, that we um, examine. And the, for the vast majority, the, rec the reconciliation is largely a, um, a more of a private one, um, meaning that for the victims' families, um, finding out about what happened to their loved ones and getting um, a, uh, you know, whatever documentation we've been able to provide, along with our describing the other cases that we know about as a way of saying to them, it wasn't an isolated incident, what happened to your loved one, is usually the most important. One part of the reconciliation, so that I should say that we recognize it's not fully, uh, as, uh, not as well developed, is what happens for the perpetrator's families. Mm -hmm. And um, so one instance, um, we had, a, it was a town in Texas. So it wasn't necessarily the perpetrator's family, but the town itself, had a public record, you know, a discussion about what happened to the person. They named the street after the victim. White and black members of the community came together. They learned about his life, met his descendants. The mayor kind of officially apologized on behalf of the town. Um, and the black and white residents, in many of these cities, it's still black and white, but not all, right? Because obviously, American demography is changing. But in these instances, um, they had those public gatherings, which are quite local. We're talking about this was a small town in Texas, seem to have gone a long way. So that's one part of it, which mm -hmm. is um, meeting with, bringing towns together. And it's of a certain generation. So I should say, well, sometimes we've gone out on these cases and met families. Um, one venue that we've f found pretty useful are uh, family reunions. Many African-Americans have family reunions over the summer, and we would go. Now, the great thing about them is that you get well-fed. But, um, <laughs> um, and I, you know, I've got many cousins now. But, um, but there's also something about this pretty interesting, is that it's a quite a generational thing. So people under 40 are like, whatever. So we'll come and talk, and we'll say, what do you know? We'd ask, who's the most eldest person in the room? because we want to talk to you, right? But then in addition to that, we describe to the family what happened, what we think happened, we need their help, whatever memories they have, this and that. And it's kind of surprising. The younger people aren't really that interested, hmm. right? Their parents are interested, and their grandparents are very interested. But the younger people are like, OK, you know, now can we get to the dance, right? I mean, so, so we're not being naive here. We recognize that in a way, it's not capturing the imagination of the younger people. And we kind of, so if reconciliation, so we can read that in two ways. One could be that this isn't our story, right? We're not, we don't really fully understand it. And we're not even going to claim, we're not even going to claim that we understand it. Um, and we could take heart in that by saying that this generation sees their life in a different kind of way. And maybe they are not freighted with the ways that 
eyes in my 50s and people older than me kind of look at this. So I haven't been as disheartened by that, but it did take me by surprise when I saw young people. I remember being at several family unions and yeah, the kids are looking at me like, when are you gonna be finished? And, and um, so I, I, I but I, I, I learned at first, my distress turned to, well, okay, I'm gonna put a positive spin on that and just assume that for them, this isn't their story, but they have another kind of story. They're writing their history, their story, they're writing it. Yeah. And I'm an observer in a way to that story. Mm. I just wanna add one thing to that, um, which is the, very, the second recommendation that this is the president's task force. And 20 year first century policing right? the, final report, which you can get online. The, um, the second recommendation we made, this is 1.2, is that law enforcement agencies should acknowledge the role of policing in past and present injustice and discrimination and how it is a hurdle to the promotion of community trust. And you know, we had a bunch of stories, a lot of testimony about that. And one in particular I wanted to share briefly, which was the police chief of Montgomery, Alabama. Mm. Do you know this one? No, I don't. The, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is the John Lewis story. So this guy's name is Kevin Murphy. He was the police chief, and John Lewis was went back, mm. as he does sometimes, and um, the chief was part of a delegation that welcomed him back. This was in 2013. The church um, that was firebombed the night after a bunch of the Freedom Riders arrived. So the church is firebombed, they cut electrical, you know, this mob, white mob does this, and the police are nowhere to be found, right? So this is what I was talking about. Right, like, exactly. there's a part of citizenship where the police actually protect you. Right. It wasn't exactly. happening. Exactly. Um, so Kevin Murphy goes to him and says, um, I want to apologize. Lewis was there at, during the firebombing. Yes, so, he was there. This is years, years, years right. later. The new police station is across the street from this church. It wasn't then. So he goes to the church and he says, I want to apologize to you for the way that the Montgomery police acted. It was their job to protect you as you um, uh, tried to exert your constitutional rights. We failed you. He had this whole long thing. Um, and then at the very end of it, gave John Lewis his badge. And he said, this badge is reserved for people who stand for rights like you. And you should wear this badge. And you know, John, it was actually, you, should, you can watch you it. You can watch it online. online. It's so stunning. It's, it's really moving. Nobody knew he was going to do it. Even his wife didn't know he was going to do it. By him, I mean the police chief. And you know. These are extraordinary acts right, um, that are extremely meaningful. That's hope. <laughs> the thing is, is you know what I think is interesting about uh, Melissa's project is, you know, she says it, she's doing these really small retail, like trying to imagine to do a recommendation like we do to do this wholesale big. It's really hard because after Kevin Flynn does this now. Every police chief can't go out and do it, right? Because then it doesn't mean anything anymore. So you know, it, it's hard. Lewis had a. He said. I, he said. I just want to make sure you have another one, when he gave him his badge. <laughs> that was. Um, all right. Last question. Oh, good evening. Thank you for all of your comments. My name, just, oh yeah. <laughs> my name is Camille Uwoli, and I'm a PhD student in the economics department. And I know you mentioned Freakonomics, and within the economics community, there's a lot of discussion about that and the economic analysis within that. But I was also wondering, 
what kind of questions you thought it would be really interesting to answer given the very large data set work often done by economists? Huh. Well, right. So I didn't go into the whole backstory of the freak. So Steve Levitt thinks that he comes up with the right instrument, but then Justin McCrary finds out that it was a data artifact, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, suffice it to say that it really has been established that you can do this, right? So that the endogeneity problem was um, addressed successfully. Um, here's what I think. I think that one of the issues with that work is that it has fed into what I'm calling the public safety paradigm because we collect crime data, right? So we have crime data and we have police, we can count them. And so this becomes an important question because of what you said at the beginning. Why are we looking at Boston and California and Chicago? Because we have data. Why don't we look in the South? Because nobody has data. Why don't we? Um, actually attempt to assess police legitimacy and the extent to which there's public trust because surveys cost a lot of money and we don't have data. We pay attention to what we count. Right. Right. And so part of your question is, is there a way to think about using the extant data because you're an econ major and that's what you do, you know, to actually address the kinds of questions that I think are really important? The answer is no. <laughs> There is no extant data. What you need to do is, is either create it or start agitating to get this data, right? Because you know, things aren't going to change until we start counting what really matters. Well, I want to thank both of you so, so much for coming here. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you all for coming as well. Uh, we will have some version of this um, online if people, if people are interested in continuing the conversation. Uh, and if you want more information about upcoming communication forum events, you can find that online as well. Oh, and, and the Restorative Justice Project yeah. has uh, a, an amazing trove of materials online. We do, although our website is um, it's a little stale. Um, <laughs> Not compared to ours. <laughs> <laughs> they can't keep, it can't keep up, and we... Um, um, but so if you look at it, it looks a little stale and excuse, it doesn't reflect its wealth. That's but it, but it, there are primary documents there. Are some there are also the cases, but we haven't put up everything because we still haven't organized it. We have too much. Right. So thank you all very much. And please join me in giving Melissa a hand.